This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I am your host, Mark. And the first time I ever heard Vashti Bunyan was as the theme song for the Amazon Prime TV series Patriot a few years ago. But the song was so beautiful, I let it play through every episode. I did a little digging to find out more about the song and was surprised to learn it had originally been released in 1966. The more digging I did on Vashti and her music, the more fascinated I became. Why had I never heard this beautiful music? Why was there a 35-year gap between her first and second albums? Why was there a nine-year gap between her second and third albums? Then, out of the blue, I got an email. Would you like to do a podcast with Vashti Bunyan? What? Are you kidding me? This is proof of God. Of course I want to talk with Vashti Bunyan. She's written a memoir that answers all the questions I had and more. What's her connection with the Rolling Stones? Who are the amazing session musicians on her earliest work? Why the gap between albums? Where did she go? What did she do? It's a fascinating story that could only have happened in 60s and 70s UK, or maybe San Francisco. For example, there's the one about meeting Donovan and taking a horse and cart across the UK to live in his artist's community. Or the one about getting performance advice from Devendra Banhart after not performing at all for about 40 years. And what happened to all of her instruments? Her book is a fun, easy read with wonderful stories about beautiful music. I highly recommend picking it up wherever you get books. Vashti recommends independent book dealers if possible. To follow her at Vashti Bunyan on Twitter and Instagram, check out her music wherever you can. Follow us at Performance Annex on Twitter and Instagram. You can support the show with coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety or with merch at performanceanx.threadless.com and I hope you enjoy this talk with Vashti Bunyan as much as I did on performance anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network <laughs> oh great okay well I'll have a go okay this is Vashti Bunyan and I am talking to Mark Shea on the Performance Anxiety podcast and I am 
talking to him about a book that I have written, a memoir about my childhood, my music, and 30 years that I had <laughs> nothing to do with music at all, and then it all came back. And that's what the book is about. And uh, I really thank Mark for speaking to me about it. It's been fun. So what time is it where you are? Uh, it's 10 o'clock. All right. So I'm in All Virginia. Right. Oh, in Virginia, right. Yeah. Still quite early then. Still quite early after St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. <laughs> For everybody in my house, <laughs> but me, apparently. Every, everybody's out. I, my wife and the three kids are all still sleeping. Right. Even the dogs. Oh, I don't know, but now you're having to work. That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again for, for doing this. This is wonderful. This podcast usually is a pretty deep dive into my guests' careers and how you got to being a carefree young child to writing your memoirs right now. So mm -hmm. there's a lot in there. So uh, I do appreciate the time you put aside to do this and uh, we'll just, we'll kind of jump right in if that's all right with you. Absolutely. Fine. All right. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. So I was reading the book and you did, you, you've had quite an experience as a child. I mean, you know, your parents were both creative in their own different ways. And you'd mentioned that your mom liked to perform before she got married and yes. your father, <laughs> even though he was a dentist, did like to invent things. He was, yeah, he thought of himself as an inventor, that's for sure. So is yes. that where you think a lot of the, the creativity came from? Is, is, it was a little bit hidden in the family, but, I mean, it was there. It was there. It was there. And I think because my father was a very unusual kind of person, <laughs> <laughs> that, that he was creative in his way, as, as you said, and uh, also a bit of a rebel and um, very anti-establishment, I would think. He'd probably think of himself like that. Um, and I think I got a bit of that from him. But, you know, he, he didn't go along with things as they were. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I get because I did read about the uh, interesting collection of things that he had in his shed, the, you know, the uh, bones and the. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't even in a shed. And we lived in this big house. Well, the sort of tall house in London. Oh, okay. And he had a dental surgery. And be besides that, he had a laboratory. He called it his laboratory. It was just a room. But it was. It was full of the most. Mm, yeah, skeletons <laughs> <laughs> and jars of things. Yes, that's, he was he was unusual. That's amazing. <laughs> Between that and then moving from the older house or estate that you lived in into the post-war London, you know, surrounded by bombed-out buildings. Between that yes. and having a laboratory filled with bones, if that <laughs> yes, that made must have had your imagination going wild. It, it did. It did. And because I was the youngest of the family, I was allowed uh, free reign and I um, I had a great time, really. I was allowed I was allowed so much freedom, whereas my brother, older brother and sister, they had grown up much more traditionally. And uh, I think by the time I came along after the war, nobody really had the energy to look out for me. <laughs> <laughs> So I was free to do whatever I wanted, really. Wow. It was, mm -hmm. The benefits of being the third child, too, because yeah. the first two wore out your parents. I know 
I would say that with mine, but my three are so close together. It's it, you know they're about a year, under a year apart each. So that's wow. uh, they all broke us at the same time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when when did music really start coming into your life and making an impact on you? I think always from very young, although nobody in my family played an instrument. My father had a huge collection of classical records and he played music all the time. I didn't know until after he died, actually, that he could play the organ. And oh, I wow. never I never saw him do that, but he played organ music wow. all the time and especially on Sundays. And he would... Yeah, he would pretend to be in a conductor and conduct this imaginary orchestra from the top of the stairs. So there was always music in my life. And also there was the radio, which my mother always had on. So it was always there, yeah. although nobody around me played anything. And, oh, wow. uh, and I really wanted to, but the only lessons I got were violin lessons and I didn't like violin very uh, much. Oh, I, was, I wanted to ask you that because I, I also, in reading your memoirs, was kind of struck by, you said you had a piano in the house that ended up getting cut up because nobody wanted it. Yes. Yes, that was um, when I was about five. We, my father was ill and we had to move from the house that we had into post-war London. Right. <laughs> and at that time, yes, there was a grand piano in the sitting room. Beautiful thing. And I had to watch it be cut up and oh. chopped up because nobody wanted it. You know, this was post-war London and who was going to want a, a grand piano? So, yes, yeah. I... I remember it so well i remember its legs being sawn off oh <laughs> ah, the pain <laughs> that is oh gosh um, and the dog was given away because oh. we couldn't come into london i oh. don't know which was worse really <laughs> <laughs> for a five-year-old yeah i'm probably the dog but yeah still <laughs> yeah they both stay in my head <laughs> oh gosh so, so you, the first instrument you started playing was the violin then yeah Yes. Uh, yeah, I didn't like it very much. <laughs> oh, no. But, but you did bring it to school, though. Yes, I, I was sent to boarding school when I was about 14 to try and write my ways. <laughs> yeah. try, and, <laughs> try and tame me down a little. And I did take my violin, but the teacher there had me play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star every week for the whole term. Oh. And so the next term I didn't take my violin. And when I got home after that term, my dad had flogged it to somebody coming to the door looking for old things. And so... Oh, wow. <laughs> I was, yeah. So uh, yeah. Every that's instrument that, in your life is getting destroyed or given away. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think I got used to that. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store 
or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Before you skip over this ad, give me one minute. Like most podcasts, I pick sponsors carefully and I use the products that advertise here. Pure Spectrum CBD is a product that has been really beneficial for me. They have a wide variety of great products that can be used on a daily or as needed basis. I've been using the tincture every day and it's been wonderful for easing anxiety. And I absolutely love the isolate. I use it instead of acetaminophen or ibuprofen and it's worked so well for the relief of aches and pains. They also have soaks, lotions, salves, gummies, and more, plus an entire line for fitness recovery. They even have products for your pets. See everything they offer at PureSpectrumCBD.com. And if you have questions, they're there to help. They helped me when I had no idea where to start. After you fill your cart, use code PERFORMANCEANX for 15% off your purchase. Pure Spectrum CBD, Pure Spectrum CBD, Pure Spectrum CBD. So you're in your early teens, and is that when you saw your first concert? Because I know you had a, a kind of a more interesting experience with your first concert than most people get, because you actually got to meet the artists. Yes, yes, I did, because my parents had friends who were, um, they, they uh, used to put on shows at the Blackpool Opera House every summer, and that was actually the first way that, that pop musicians could get to do live stuff was to get a summer season oh. in one of these big theatres by the sea. And these friends of my parents, they had Cliff Richard have a, a, do a show. Well, he was headlining a show. Wow. At the Blackpool Opera House. And at that time, I, I well, I think, yeah, I was, I was 15, 16. And, and he was the one that I saw most of on, you know, uh, British TV. There wasn't an awful lot right. <laughs> of music representation. But the people like him, I, I totally worshipped. And of course, he became the most incredibly uncool person over the next years. But at that time... Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, dear. And my, actually, my daughter when I was starting to do all, uh, all of this and, and tell people about myself, she said, you must not tell anybody that you ever liked Cliff Richard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. It's, it, it lingers on. So I did. And there's his picture in my book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. See, you don't listen to anybody ever. Uh -huh. I love it. <laughs> how old were you when you started picking up the guitar and how did you come across the guitar everybody's giving away your instruments and cutting them up and stuff well I, I was lucky in that I, I went to an art school after leaving school that I think nobody really knew what to do with me and so <laughs> <laughs> she can draw send her off to art school so, um, 
And I, I shared a bedsit with a girl called Jenny Lewis who had a guitar. And we started writing songs together. And actually, having learned the violin, it did help me to learn the guitar very quickly. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. You had some interesting friends while you were... That was at Ruskin School of Drawing, right? Yes, the Ruskin School of Drawing and Fine Art, it was called. And it was very, very old school, old fashioned. <laughs> so you knew some interesting people there because you were... Besides your, your roommate, you also were hanging out with Terry Jones and Michael Palin at that time, yeah. which yeah. You know, is amazing. Well, it was a long time before Monty Python right? days that were, they were so funny. Yeah. <laughs> they were, and they, they used to do little reviews in, in Oxford at little theatres and uh, just watching them coming up with the ideas for the sketches. It was the most oh, agonisingly funny. Um, and I'll never forget that part, that time before they were famous and uh, when they were just so clever, so clever. That is incredible. Robert Hewson was also there and he's, Michael Palin credits him for pushing him into performing. Who, yes. who pushed you into performing? Was it something you wanted to do on your own? And, and when did you start performing? Was it around that time or before? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I guess with, with Jenny Lewis and another friend, uh, uh, Angie Strange, we, we formed a group called The Three of Us. And we did perform in Oxford and also in, in ver various places. But uh, And we were all at the art school. But... I got thrown out after two years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sensing a pattern. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I got thrown out. Um, and so that was the end of our, our trio. They stayed and, and they became <laughs> an act themselves. But then I, I um, yeah, I, I uh, went off on my own and uh, tried to be a a wandering minstrel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was the three of us the first time you really performed out in public? Yes. Oh, wow. yeah. okay. Okay. And it was good fun. And we, we played Everly Brothers and Buddy Holly and a couple of songs that we'd written. And it, it was, we had very good harmonies. We were great. Oh, man. I would love to hear that stuff. Oh. And around yeah. that time is, is when you ended up going to New York. Yes, I went to New York because my sister lived there and she had three little kids and I was supposed to be looking after them. Um, I don't think I made a very good job of that. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> while I was there, I discovered the album, uh, the Bob Dylan album, the freewheeling Bob Dylan yes. album in a shop window. And from then on, I was just, well, it, it opened my mind to a completely different way of thinking and different way of looking at the world. And I realized how sheltered I'd been and how ignorant in lots of ways that I was. Okay. Socially ignorant, politically ignorant. And that, that album actually did fill up, well, I've said it before, it filled some of the air in my head. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, from, from those songs, I was determined that I would go home and I would try to find somebody to record my songs because I'd already been writing songs by then. Okay. And I wanted to bring my songs out. And in, after a while, I met Andrew Lou Goldham, who was the manager of the Rolling Stones. Right. And 
Uh, well, he was the only one actually who saw anything in me at all. All the others were the, the sort of old school entrepreneurs of the, you know, the old guard as I called them. Right. And yeah. they, they couldn't imagine me in a in a sparkly ball dress, and I couldn't either. And yeah. I was, you know, I just had an old jumper and. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Um, but Andrew must have seen something else in me, and he he gave me uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richard song for my first single. Wow. Why does the sky turn grey every night? Sunrise again in time. Why do you think of the first love you had? Something's just taken your really cross oh yes <laughs> well you were writing your own music at that point or... my songs to be recorded but uh, i did it and it was a, it was an amazing experience to have a huge orchestra all around me yeah. Um, and yeah i'll never forget it and uh, although it didn't work um <laughs> it was <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no regrets. <laughs> well, it must have been an incredible experience. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and listening to that single, and to be honest with you, something's just sticking in your mind is good, but I actually like I Want to Be Alone more. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I truly do. And it's, I don't know, maybe it's just, I like to, it's a little more pared down, but you still had a huge, you know, people, a bunch of people recording that. You look at the credits on that and, you know, at the time they were studio musicians, but I mean, you had Nicky Hopkins, Big Jim Sullivan, John McLaughlin and Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page. (laughs) Yes. I I know. I know. And and none of them were well known. They were, they were session session musicians. Yeah. And yeah, 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 it was incredible. Well, I thought that I Want to Be Alone was better as well because it was mine. (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoyed the arrangement with David Whitaker just putting it together. It was really good. And uh, I said on a radio show that I thought I wrote better songs than Mick Jagger and Keith Richard, but I meant for me. Right. Wrote better songs than them, but I thought, I, you know, for, for me to sing, I right. thought I, but I got in big trouble. Oh, I bet <laughs> from the management. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> but the amazing thing to me is that Andrew Luke Oldham also said, "Yeah, here's a song by Jagger and Richards, who are up and coming. I mean, they they weren't the Jagger and Richards of a couple of years after that, but they were still known. Yeah, oh, sure, but, they were already huge. Yeah." Yes, they, but yeah. he, he said, you know, you can also record your own stuff, which to me is just, especially yeah. at that time, it sounds like it was just amazing. He had so much faith in you at that time. It was unusual. Yeah. <laughs> it was unusual for uh, somebody to be writing their own songs, you know. So, yeah, it, 
was good that he let me put that on the B-side. But at that time, nobody ever took any notice of B-sides. Ah. And in fact, since, uh, because I've come to know him again in, in these last few years, he has said that he thinks it was the better one as well. That's but at the time, at the time, you know, there was no way they were going to put that out as an A-side. Right. Um, I think it would have worked, you know. I I really do. I I agree. I love it. I think, like I said, I think I think it's better than the A side. So it's you know. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's but really, <laughs> it's not my favorite. My favorite train song is just such, mm. it, and that's how I found out about you is the resurgence of the track years years later, and it it was. I know. I didn't really. Hearing on commercials, and I, I know it, it started a resurgence in the commercial vein, but the first time I heard it was actually, I think the second time it was a TV theme song on the show the Patriot. Oh yes, which I loved that. I love that show, and it was it connected with the show perfectly, and it was such a. I'm trying to find the right word. It's it, it's such a beautifully, almost sad sounding song that mm -hmm. is one of the very few songs that in the days of streaming, I will let the theme song play through instead of just hitting that skip intro button. <laughs> so, oh, really? Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was such a, a haunting song. And I just, I had yeah. to, every time the show came on, I had to hear it. because that was my second single That's... when I'd left Andrew and gone away to somebody else who was just going to let me do what I wanted and Train Song was just a, a double bass and a cello and two guitars and I thought it was I thought that this is really what I wanted to do what I wanted to do was to have a simple song with simple backing into the charts into the top 20 that was my ambition to have something simple uh, but of course it never got played at all that's oh, <laughs> such a crime and yeah and all of those years later as you say, for, for Patriot and for, for commercials, it came into its own, which is so lovely for me, you know, pretty much 50 years after it was recorded. And, you know, give me a little bit of faith in that good music will eventually find a way. It'll find its way, yeah. Eventually. <laughs> eventually, yeah. So things, around that time, things got really crazy for you. I mean, you ended up recording a whole bunch of music that didn't come out. You yeah. sang background on songs, The Coldest Night of the Year by Twice As Much. Cold, 
had an yeah. appearance in Tonight Let's All Make Love in London with song Winter is Blue. bunch of music that just stayed on the shelf yeah uh, it was uh, it was a hard time because i, I would I, I would record something everybody say yeah that's great and then it would get shelved and then they i would record something else and they'd say something oh that this is the one this is great this is great this is great and i thought you're right okay this is when it's going to happen and my parents and my family are going to you know they'll understand that actually i can do this yes and then nothing would happen and and that went on for about a year and a half that things got made and shelved and it was really distressing i was very young i guess and i was so determined that this would work and when it didn't uh yeah i i um (laughs) i had a hard time it's amazing to me that a, a song like i'd like to walk around in your mind gets stuck on a shelf because that's that's an amazing song well that's my favorite one really and it was when i really thought that i'd broken through that this was really what i wanted to sound like and i thought the song was good i thought the arrangement was great It was Andrew, when he heard it, Andrew Olden, uh, he said, it needs strings. And oh. we tried, it just didn't work. Yeah. And you know, the, the way things were then, and things happened so quickly, and, you know, if it didn't work, it got put aside and something else, you know, a new thing would take place, and it all just happened so quickly, and suddenly there was nothing. Yeah. And, and yet that was my, yeah, that song was my big hope. Oh. Um, and it didn't it didn't come out at all until until what 2000 i think when the yeah we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors hey pantheon listeners christian swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear as i'm sure you can guess i listen to a lot of podcasts I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. 
works. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell ya, I have small ear canals, uh, I know a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, <laughs> oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. But before that, before we even get into that, then you kind of, did you just walk away for a little bit before your first album came out? You took a huge trip. Yeah, it was a huge trip. Well, yes. I met somebody, an art student, who had the same kind of ideas as I did. But his idea was to just get out of it, get out of where we were in London and from through a series of of things that happened to us, we decided. Well, we met we met Donovan Donovan the singer, right? And he had just wow. bought some ornaments off the west of Scotland, miles away, off the very north of the UK. Okay, and he wanted to people it with people all like him, people who were singers and musicians and painters and writers. He wanted a, a West Coast renaissance, he said. Wow. Um, oh, great idea. We're, we're going there. Um, and he went off in his Land Rover um, and we ended up with a horse and cart. That's <laughs> 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 the, the only means of transport that we thought that we could afford because horses don't need petrol. <laughs> And we did actually, through the most incredible circumstances, which I describe in the book, we did find a horse and we found a cart. And we set off from London, from the south of London, over London Bridge, heading for the north. (laughs) And we didn't realise how long it was going to take us to get there, but it did take two two summers and a winter. Wow. Um, we We did get there, but then... We didn't stay. But yes, uh, along the way, I wrote songs, not ever thinking of recording them because I'd had such a bad experience with recording. But I wrote songs to keep us going in a way because it was quite hard. It, you know, I can imagine. Britain, it rains a lot. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. That's. Yeah, so, you know, it was quite a muddy experience in lots of ways, but when the sun shone, it was just magical. So, yeah, it was, the songs were written in order to keep us going and and to keep keep our spirits up and to keep the dream up, the dream of what was going, you know, what was ahead of us, this wonderful life that we were heading for. And halfway through the journey, I met Joe Boyd, the producer. And he liked the songs and he wanted to make an album at the end of the journey. We were only halfway through it by then. But another year later, we recorded the songs. Okay. Okay. So this is making the timelines now make a little more sense to me then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it it took a while. 
we recorded the songs in December 69. It came out as an album in December 1970. In that time, musical taste, musical uh, sense had really changed. And that little old album didn't mean anything to anybody anymore. It's and amazing. Least of all to me, because I had a baby by then and I didn't give a, I didn't care. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but people started to care. It took 30 years. But, you know? yeah. <laughs> just another diamond just a blade of grass, just another pair of hay, and the horses pass. La 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 So the album, like you mentioned, nothing really happened with the album, and you just walked away from everything and st- and, w- and raised your family. Uh, again, I walked away from it. I walked because I had been reluctant to go back into a studio and make more recordings. Yeah. But I did it because Joe was wonderful, and and he had such faith in it. And then nothing happened to it. And yes, I had this baby, and I had to figure out a way of living. Um, and it wasn't going to be through music. And I I uh, I didn't pick up my guitar again. And uh, Yes, I, I concentrated on my kids, my animals, and my life. <laughs> so you never really ended up supporting that album, though. You never did. You, you never really played out and, and supported that. You just no, left. no. Joe offered because I, I was homeless at the time. I, I was sleeping on people's floors with my baby, and wow. I mean, it was we were really not in a good way. Uh, and Joe offered to find us somewhere to live in London if I would do concerts and show and, and promote the album. Mm-hmm. With my wee baby, I... Or the other thing he offered us was a cottage in a row of cottages belonging to the incredible string band up in Scotland. Oh, okay. Because you had a couple of... of uh, Robin Williamson helped mm-hmm. out on your album. Okay. On the album, yeah. And, and, yeah, and Joe produced the incredible string band. Right. And so... And so I had the choice of either staying in London and doing shows to promote the album or a cottage in the countryside (laughs) up in Scotland with other musicians. So I chose to go to Scotland and I didn't I didn't promote the album partly because I didn't like it. very Really? Oh, wow. (laughs) I know. I know. I didn't feel that it was to. I think because it was much folkier than I had intended it to be because Joe brought in these folk musicians to play on it, and I had no say in that. But the songs that were arranged by Robert Kirby, who arranged Nick Drake's songs, I loved those. I thought that that was the way it should have been, all of it. But with the other ones, with the the, the, the banjos and the mandolins and the fiddles, I didn't like that. I was... But, but, you know, it, I've said this before, but back then the producer was God and you didn't go, actually, I don't want a banjo on that song. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I've, I've heard that before too, yeah. 
Yeah, it, it's it's very different now. Yeah, I think. But back then, yes, the producer had just had his hand on all the levers, and so yeah. you know, I, I went along with it. Well, you know, I mean, and I don't think anybody would have expected you to do otherwise either. So, not then, no. So when you walked away, again, mm-hmm. did you just drop it completely? I mean, did you? If there's, yeah. there's a thirty year gap between releases, and I mean, did you write anything? Did you play music at all? Did you have any of it in the ha- nothing? Wow. Mm-hmm. Nothing. I didn't even sing to my children. Uh, we had a few tapes in the car. I think there was Bob Marley and Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> the freewheeling Irish, Bob Dylan, sure. An Irish band called Plankstein. That was the three that we had. And that was all my kids had to listen to when, they were, when we were going around in the car because we didn't have a player in the house. Nothing. Wow. And I feel really bad about that. I feel that they were... You know that they they missed out on a lot because uh, I was anti music because I had left it completely. I didn't want it in my life at all. That's I didn't my guitar and yeah. Wow, that is. Did your did your kids know about it at all? Well, my daughter since told me that they found a tape copy, a dusty old tape copy in the back of a drawer and they took it out to the car to play it secretly because they knew I wouldn't want them to hear it. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Your kids are just as rebellious as you are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Oh my gosh. I love that. I know. I know. Yeah. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't play my guitar until I was teaching my 16 year old son to play it himself. Um, Oh my gosh. I never picked it up at all. Meanwhile, just another mm. diamond day is attaining cult status, and you are oblivious to it. Totally oblivious. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, I'm. It's uh, and to be honest, I, I was looking at it the other day. An original copy of the 1970 release is still insane. It's over four thousand dollars. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? Well, Joe Boyd can't remember how many were actually printed to begin with. Oh, wow. He thinks maybe 300 at the very most. Wow. They do occasionally come up on eBay. And, and as you say, they, yeah, they, they just, they, oh, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. And, and I can't believe it. One of, one of the sites that I, I use for research is is called Discogs. And oh, yeah. It's a great site, and uh, if you collect music, anybody listening, it's a great way to keep track of your collection because you can start your own collection, and whatever you have, you can you can enter it and keep track of it. I use it for insurance purposes because I have like four thousand CDs, and if anything were to happen to this house, I, I mean, grand total, it's probably worth like four thousand CDs is probably worth like one hundred and fifty bucks at this point. <laughs> CDs are worthless. <laughs> But I would at least have an idea of what I used to have and I could start to rebuild. But I was looking at this the other day. I'm going to pull up right now since we've we've got this here. There are four for sale on Discogs starting at $1,000 and going upwards to over $4,000 for a very good, let's see, one in very good condition. Up to, and that's 4,000 US, and then there's one, the 3,350, uh, 3,350 pounds. Oh, 
It's me. I'm not even sure what that translates to in in U.S. dollars, but quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so it still has quite a bit of cult status attached to it. Yeah, just rarity. It's just yeah. very rare. Yeah. But but so many people love it, which is, so the demand is high. Mm-hmm. What caused the reissue in 2000? How did that come about? Did you know about it? Were you contacted? or? I got onto the internet in about 96, and somebody alerted me to the fact that this album was still, you know, known about and that people were paying silly money for it. Probably then it was about 50 bucks, but <laughs> even so, that seemed like a lot to me. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I... There was a, a, a bootleg, a terrible bootleg that was recorded from a, a, a scratched vinyl, and I found that. Oh. oh, dear, that is terrible. I'd better try to find out if I can actually get it onto a CD and, and you know, get it really nicely made. And there, it was, the songs were published by Ryko. And, okay. Um, Somebody at Ryko had found the old publishing contracts and got in touch with me to say, what's, what, what's this? What, what are these songs? <laughs> um, I, I knew somebody who did have a, a, an original, and I got him to make a tape, a cassette tape for me. And I sent it to Paul Landon. And he called me and he said, I like it. And that, that, you know, that, that made the ground fall away for me because nobody in my entire life had ever said that. Wow. I like it. And he said, we should bring it out. You know, we should bring it out again. And he formed a little tiny label called Spinny and we remastered it and it came out on CD in 2000. And I was terrified. I thought the same thing would happen again, that it would just be dismissed as nursery rhymes and songs for kids. And it's just, (laughs) quite different this time different generation different understanding of wow. different kinds of music yeah. and, that, and that it was a document of, of its time and uh, quite different this time it yeah was just... and there's an appreciation for it at least now yes so yeah it's got extra tracks on it where you since yeah. you've put all this aside where was all the the, the where the original tapes where were the extra songs where did you find the other stuff my friend Jenny Lewis had Winter is Blue on an acetate demo wow. that she kept all of those years. Love Song was the other side of Train Song. And someone called Bob Stanley, who knows everything about music, found it in the BBC archives. Oh, wow. <laughs> Somebody had found the, the acetate demo of that and put it onto an album called Pop Psych Obscurities. Oh, my God. 
we got in touch with him and uh, he gave us permission to use the track. And the other one was a, a recording by my brother of a different version of one of the songs on Diamond Day. And um, at that time, because of what Joe had written for the sleeve notes originally, that he'd seen me singing songs at a poetry reading, we thought we'd put some of those songs on the end to, to sort of illustrate what he'd said. And I'm glad we did. I'm glad we put I'd like to walk around in your mind on that, on the CD. Yeah. Uh, because that brought it to people's attention, which I really, really loved. Yeah. Really loved. Was the response for that the, the impetus for doing some things to stick in your mind? The, the compilation? Oh, the compilation. Yeah. Um, now that that came after my second album. I, I I started writing songs again because of the lovely response. Okay. And you know, it brought something back out in me. I could pick up my guitar and without feeling desperate, and uh, I started writing songs again. And I made another album with Max Richter, the composer, called Look Aftering, and. Uh, that that was that was wonderful. That was great to be able to be involved in in the the arranging and in the recording. So different to the Andrew Oldham days or the Joe Boyd days. Yeah, he was the producer, but he brought me in to the decision making, which was wonderful. And then we decided to make a compilation of my old singles and demos. And at that time, I found an old tape, a, a quarter inch tape that my brother had sent me ages ago. And my brother had passed away by this time, but I found this box of tapes he'd sent me. And one of them was a, my very first recording that I'd paid for when I came back from New York, when I was looking for managers and agents or whatever, whoever would take me. Right. Uh, of 10 songs, just for the guitar. And we thought, oh, well, we'll make it a two-CD two, two CD compilation. And we, we kept that tape with all its, I mean, some of the songs are really awful and totally embarrassing, but <laughs> <laughs> we kept it all and made a compilation of, of all of every available bit of recording I ever did. That is with, amazing. And so those yeah. those tracks at the end, that's the session where you, you recorded like 10 or 12 songs in an hour, I think it was? Yeah. Yeah, it was. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My... I remember it so well. <laughs> my my little very, very English voice uh, saying the t titles between each song. Yeah. <laughs> Leave me. <laughs> In fact, I think you had to repeat that one for the engineer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Leave me. Leave me. <laughs> when you said you would leave me, I thought that I would die. I thought I couldn't live anymore if you weren't here by my side. But now go. Actually, you got very busy around that time because you, you ended up work, doing work with Stephen Malkmus, Devendra Banhart, Animal Collective, which that, it's you. 
is so good. I love that it's song. Lovely, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's such a beautiful song. And meeting them and recording with them was, was certainly one of the highlights of my life because we, we just did a song a day. We did three songs and they were so incredible. They, you know, I thought I was going to do backing vocals, but they pushed me forward. Oh, boy. To, and, and, you know, I, I hadn't done much singing by then, but it was so great to ah, to find out I could sing. You know, this was before I made Look After Him. So, oh, okay. um, yeah. Yeah, they were absolutely wonderful with me. Well, do you think you could just do do this bit? <laughs> <laughs> okay, are you sure? <laughs> just, just encouraging yeah. you, getting you back, yeah. shaking the rust yeah. off. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I've, I do have a question. What does look after mean? Is there a, a meaning behind it, or is it something that just... It was just a word that, that my family came up with. To look after something was to, t- to care for it, or to, yeah, just to take care. Okay. And, and then it became, you know, are you look aftering that one, or are you look aftering that one? And, then, you know, <laughs> um, and when we were aftering, uh, it just seemed like... Because Diamond Day had all been incredible, hopeful for a tremendous, dreamy future, it had all been looking forward. And look after it was a lot about looking back. And so, or at least those songs that we haven't come up with the title yet, but when we were mastering, just listening to them all, I was thinking, oh, well, they are about looking back. And ah, maybe look aftering could have two meanings. It could mean looking back and it could mean taking care of something. That's um, so awesome. We, we, well, actually, it was a record label that chose it. They said, yes, that's the one. And I thought, um, but mightn't people think it's a bit odd? <laughs> <laughs> odd sells. Odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, yes, it stayed. It's a beautifully lush album. Here Before is my favorite off of that album. That's oh, such baby. a beautiful song. That just came to me one night, and I was putting all the lights out, go to bed, and I picked up my guitar, and the song was there. Oh, wow. Just there. It was just lovely. And from having years and years and years of not having anything coming out of my head at all. (laughs) (laughs) It was really lovely. And your daughter did the artwork for that and for Heartleap. 
Hartley, yes, yeah, she did. Uh, she's an, an amazing painter, and she sends me what she's been doing recently, and I see them taking place, and, and uh, you know, <laughs> it's wonderful when she gets to the end of it, and there it is, this beautiful painting. And definite. well, it was Fat Cat, the label, who chose the hair for look aftering. And right. um, with Hartley, this beautiful white deer that she'd painted, it was on my desktop. Because I, I just loved it so much. It was oh, there beautiful. for a long time. And I was playing my guitar one day and I just came up with the song, Heartleap, just wow. by looking at that, that, that beautiful image. She let me use it for the cover. Uh, well, that's very nice of her. She's she's pretty, she's pretty good. Yeah, I'll, I'll say so. You actually ended up performing with uh, Look Aftering. Was it there any trepidation after thirty five years or so to step on the stage, or more? Terrifying. Terrifying. The first one was the Stephen Malkmus uh, meltdown in in London. I, asked me to do three songs oh. <laughs> the entire time but actually uh, when when I came to do a bit more or when I knew I was going to have to do more when Look Aftering was going to come out I went to see Vetiver the band that Devendra was in at that time we're in Glasgow and I went to visit them and uh, went backstage to see them all and I asked Devendra and Otto and all of them how do you do this? How do you get yourself to get on the stage in front of all those people? And they all had something different to say. And Devendra said, you just do it. Yeah. <laughs> you just do it until it doesn't matter anymore, until it doesn't mean anything anymore, and you just stop shaking and you just go on and do it. That's what I did. I gradually, gradually, I stopped shaking and enjoyed it, enjoyed it. Oh, that's, so thank you, Devendra. <laughs> that is beautiful. Uh, and, and I'm so glad because I have seen some of the, the performances and they're, they're just beautifully intimate. And the, you tell the little stories in between some of the, the songs and it's just uh -huh. I, very lovely performances. I, I've enjoyed watching them. Thank you. Thank you. I don't. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, how could I have said that? <laughs> <laughs> now, so you've mentioned in the past that Heartleap is your last album. Are you still sticking with that? Probably. Probably. <laughs> I didn't mean it to be my last album, but when we were mastering it, Mandy Parnell, who is the most wonderful mastering engineer, and she had done Look Aftering as well, and she turned to me at the end and she said, well, for your next one, I'm going to come up to your studio and put it right. <laughs> 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 it, was, it was a mess and it was all wrong and everything was facing the wrong way and you know, and I said oh my god after I think it was five days of, of mixing and mastering I said I'm never doing this again yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
and uh, yeah, Dave Howell from Fat Cat was there at the time, and so he took that as um, one of the things that he put into the promotion materials. <laughs> <laughs> this is the last album. I thought, um, I never said that, did I? Yeah. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> When did you start working on Hartley? But was was it pretty soon after? Because in reading the notes for it, it, it it says it basically took about ten years to write and create and and get it out to people. Yeah, there was quite a long time. <laughs> still better than thirty, though. It's still better than thirty. So I thought I was okay. Right. Um, but, um, I think what happened was that I had a lot of songs ready to record. And I had met Robert Kirby again, which was lovely, who had done the arrangements for some of the songs on Diamond Day, and he was Nick Drake's arranger. And So a lot later in life we met again, and he was going to produce and arrange the songs for me for my next album after Look After It. And he had some great ideas, and he'd just been recording with a with a, a brass band, and he wanted to bring the tuba along. <laughs> oh, that would be great! That's just perfect. And uh, and then I had this phone call from his wife to say that the maestro had died, and that I was so. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it it was devastating because he, not just for the music, but he was just such a lovely, lovely guy, really funny and just, uh, I don't know, just just great, uh, just yeah. great guy. And his ideas were lovely. Um, and that put me off for about three years. And, you know, I was trying to work with other people and it didn't work. And then I, re- I realized I'll do it myself. I'll just do it myself. I'll produce it. I'll arrange it. I'll do everything I can myself and try and think in some way what he might have done. Uh, and so that's what I did. So it's the first album really has your stamp over the, the entire thing. Yeah. So yeah. You, did you get the sound that you you were looking for? No. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known that answer already. yeah it's really hard i mean i said this at the end of the book that you know even with recorded music even if you've done it yourself it has to go through all kinds of other processes before it reaches its audience and those processes i wasn't really uh, uh i wasn't knowledgeable enough to know what i wanted and it didn't come out exactly as i wanted and so in the book, I've said, you know, maybe maybe painting is better because painting is immediate. You know, <laughs> nobody comes along and says, no, that hoop is wrong or no, that, that bit is wrong or no, eyes don't do that or clouds don't do that. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's much more immediate and, and direct to an audience or yeah. to somebody having a look at it. And uh and so at the end of the book, I said, maybe I should have paid more attention at the Ruskin School of Drawing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the way that the album sounds. Gunpowder, Blue Shed and Heartleap are my three favorites off of that. Oh, oh thank you. Thank you. They're just yeah. beautiful songs. And I, I think you did a great job putting your stamp on the whole thing. I think it sounds wonderful. Well, that's 
Very nice of you. Thank you. It's good to hear. Yeah, it's, you know, I think, I don't know, is anybody ever really satisfied with the end product of what they've done? I think you could always, you know, with, with recording, you could carry on, carry on, editing, editing, editing. Same with writing. My goodness. Yeah. Carry on. Oh, boy. Speaking editing. Of, speaking of writing. Yes. When did you decide to start writing a book about this whole journey you've been on? Ah, uh, well, probably when I first got a computer in 96, I okay. decided that I would start to write the story for my children so that they could get some kind of understanding of what their parents <laughs> <laughs> why their lives had been slightly unusual um and so i started writing it then i explain started... that tape that they found in the back of the mm. of that cabinet yeah exactly <laughs> and also i started doing the drawings then and i sent off a synopsis and some copies of the drawings to various publishers and got nothing back at all not even an answer so i thought oh well, that's no good then that went into a draw wow um, and actually, I, every so often I would add a little bit to it, just just for fun or as I remembered things. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of lockdown, I, um, a friend asked me what I was doing, and I couldn't say, well, nothing much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm writing, and uh, it was a complete lie. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he said, oh, well, I know a publisher who would be very interested in what you're writing. And that was Lee Braxton of White Rabbit. And I did send him some of it, and he, he signed me up, which was great. So you started it before your two albums, your, your sophomore album and your third album. So you had a whole other yes. chapter of life you had to... You, Totally. Well, that, that's that's actually what used to happen was that, oh, I must get back to writing the story, but then something more would happen with the music. And then, and, and it kept happening like that uh, for all those years. Yes. But I'm really glad that I did actually sit down to it. And I, I think probably lockdown was a, a big help. You know, I can't really say that lockdown was a help, but <laughs> actually gave me the opportunity to just concentrate, yeah. focus on getting it down and doing some more drawings and uh, just trying to to figure out how to put this story together um so yes it took a little while when you look back at the book and and trying to recount these stories has your viewpoint or opinion of the people and the circumstances changed from when it happened to when you started to write about it <sighs> Well, it depends who you mean. Ah, okay. Fair, very fair point. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think I had to be really careful in how I portray people so as not to hurt too much. Mm. And also it had to go through the lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> that is another good point. <laughs> yeah, so I had to change some things. But, um, yeah, I, I think, did it change? I think it did. I think it made me a lot, uh, made me proud of, of what we'd done. Oh, it that's wonderful. Me, yeah, and, and the more I thought about it, the more I wrote about it, the more I remembered about it, it made me feel, yeah, that was that was quite something that we did. <laughs> yeah. But, that and a, journey and all of the different things that have happened in our lives, yeah. 
and a lot of people loved it. You just didn't know about it. That's right. Oh, I didn't. I really didn't. Um, actually, when I did start writing the story, it was it was yeah three years, four years before Diamond Day came out again. So you know, I had no idea about any of it. That is amazing. Oh my gosh, I loved reading the book. I love your writing style. I it's so easy to read. Oh, good. Oh, <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah. Well, my my sister, my older sister. Um, when she was working, she was an editor, and she's always been a great literary person. And I just am not. <laughs> he said, how come you've written a book when you've never, ever read any? <laughs> so I think maybe, you know, a bit like a naive painter, you know, I think I'm a naive writer. I just put it down and I don't have to worry about grammar too much. Well, the editors had to worry about that. But, uh, <laughs> that's what you pay them for. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you argue with them. Well, about. They, that's a good point. So yeah. I've kept you for quite a while and, and I want to thank you so much for all the time you spent with me. What, where can people find the book and, and the music? And is there any, have you been writing since Heartleap? Had, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, songs. No, I haven't been writing any songs, but I am going to be writing. I am writing some more, some more details of the story. Like there was a year in Ireland that we traveled with horses and wagons that I only sort of vaguely refer to in the book, but I am writing that, that year of Ireland in 1971 into 72. An extraordinary time oh, uh, with horses and wagons and dogs and chickens and stuff. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> On the road. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm writing that. But whether any more songs will come, I don't know. My, my guitar is always by the side of me, so who knows? Well, that's good. That's a good start. And it's still here. It hasn't been, you know, cut up into pieces. Not this one, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, yeah. I, you didn't go Pete Townsend on stage at some point, smash up your guitar in a fit of excitement, yeah. did you? No. No. Okay. <laughs> Nothing quite so romantic. <laughs> well, where? What is the best avenue for people to find the book and and read it? Well, dreadfully, Amazon has it, um, and uh, and all the music as well. But I would encourage people to try to order it through independent bookshops, and it is it is orderable. Um, and Barnes and Noble do have it, I think. Um, but yes, certainly independent bookshops, local bookshops, would be able to get it. Uh, and I would love it if people were to do that. Excellent. And I know my daughter, who unfortunately I forgot to hit the record button when she was on here, she's found you. Uh, independent of me, to be honest with you. So that's, that's uh, something. She, it was obviously through Spotify because that's all she listens to. Uh, so yeah. you are, you, your music is available streaming. Oh yeah. Spotify has got most stuff. I think yeah. most of the songs. Yes. Yeah. It, it does. And YouTube. Oh my goodness. Oh that's yeah. Some of it totally embarrassing for <laughs> <their> people. <laughs> <laughs> Recorded shows and stuff, but uh, on their iPhones. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's all it's all there in a way that I could never have dreamed of. It's so, a, it's yeah, amazing. Well, 
it's well deserved because the music is is wonderful and i am so happy i watched the show patriot so many years ago and discovered your music it really it's just beautiful train song is just stuck in my mind forever ever since the first time i heard it it's just one of the songs I always go back to no matter what I'm listening to, whatever music I'm listening to, I always end up going back to train song. And, mm-hmm. and now I'd like to walk around in your mind. All right. Yeah. Those two songs just really speak to me personally. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Is there, but are can, you, can you available on uh, social media? Do you, are you interested in having people check you out on social media? Uh, well, I'm sort of starting to be a little bit more there on Twitter. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm just Vashti Bunyan one. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I did see, I think, an Instagram profile, but only one post. Yeah, I came off it. I don't know why. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I should probably get back, get back to work on that because it's silly not to, isn't it? It really is. It, it is the way... It is a way to find people, and so I should really try harder. It is. I don't like Twitter at all, but I stay on it for this the podcast. I was a photographer for years, so I like Instagram. I'm more of a visual kind of person than, really? a, than a concise tweeter, I guess is the right uh-huh. term. So Twitter, yeah. and all the, there's Twitter is such an angry platform. Oh, it can be. Uh, it can be. I don't like it. Instagram is much more, I can look at the pictures and I don't have to read what you're saying. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. yeah that, that's a good point. But why are you called performance anxiety? I will tell you that that was going to be the through line for all the episodes is, is to find, talk to people about if they had performance anxiety when they started. And right. I just kept forgetting to ask people. We just got more conversation like like this. You know, we were just talking. And then I would have my questions written out, but I never wanted the show to sound like an interview show. I didn't want to be peppering people with, well, here's bullet point one. Here's bullet point two. I always right. wanted more conversation. I, I That's the kind of podcast I like listening to so that I figured out that's what I want to create. Right. And, and I would just forget to look at my notes half the time and forget to ask. And so I had the name already. I had the logo made. I had the accounts oh. made, the email. So I'm like, oh, I just guess I'll just keep it. Uh, that's so, great. <laughs> so people like the name. I, I'm always like, I'm, I'm kind of iffy on the name, but it's, I've, I've got over 300 shows now, so I got to keep it. Oh, oh, no, I really like it. Oh, it's intriguing. And also it's an acknowledgement that there is such a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I will be honest with you, the very, I've gotten a lot better recently, but the very first few episodes, I was the one having performance anxiety. I was so nervous to talk oh. to anybody. I hated my oh. voice. I still don't like my voice, but I just, uh, but I wanted to do this. I, I really enjoyed learning the behind the scenes stories. And, and that's why having you on was so, to me, when, when Howard reached out and said, hey, would you be interested in having, I'm, yeah, Aww. this is such an amazing story. I mean, you just put it all away for 30 years and then all of a sudden you're back and it was the huge resurgence. And yeah. to me, it was just such a fascinating story. So yeah, how, how lucky how lucky am I? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're extremely, you put in the work. So it's only it, what it is to me. It's, it's just the world catching up to you. Oh. So I think you put in all that effort 
and uh, you, you finally getting the recognition you deserve, and and uh, the world is able to hear your talent. So I'm I'm really thrilled. Well, thank you. Oh, I've gone pink. <laughs> <laughs> Seventeen pink sugar elephants Sitting under a chestnut tree I said good morning pink sugar elephants But they wouldn't speak to me Each had two eyes but they couldn't see me there Each had four heads but they 